Well, good morning. If you would open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 27. It is good to be home, but I want to tell you, Jan and I had the best trip going down to celebrate our nephew's graduation from Rain Boot Camp. And that's all I'm going to brag on him. Now's not the time, but we did. We had a very, very good trip, and it's good to be home. All right, let's bow together before we begin looking into God's Word. Our Father, how we thank you for this opportunity that we can meet together with our brothers and sisters and open your Word, open it and read it, study and have Christ preached to us from it. And Father, I beg of you that you send your Spirit upon us this morning, that you would enable us to truly worship from the heart, that you would enable us to, to be able to understand what the things that we hear taught, and that you give us a heart to love them and to believe them, to see our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, if you don't meet with us, we know we've met in vain. Father, meet with us, I pray. Enable the name of Christ our Savior to be exalted and us to see and worship. Enable us from our weak, stammering tongues to be able to exalt the name of Christ our Savior. And what we pray for ourselves in this hour, we pray for our children's classes. And Father, we pray for your people, wherever they might be found this morning, who are meeting to, to worship you, to hear word from thee. Father, I pray in this dark and difficult day that you'd cause your gospel to run well, that you'd give us a revival in the land, that you would send out your word to reach your people and to accomplish your purpose of mercy and grace for them. Father, we do pray blessing for those that are in times of great difficulty. There are many spread all around, but there are no cases too hard for thee. There's no one so far away that you don't know and see them and aren't with them. Father, we pray you bless your people, that you'd heal, comfort, and if it could be thy will, that you'd deliver them quickly. All these things we ask in that name which is above every name, the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Well, I've titled our lesson this morning, The Fall of Judas. Now, last week we looked at the fall of Peter. How Peter fell when he denied he even knew the Lord. And how Peter was preserved. How he was restored. Now this week we're going to look at a very different story. The fall of Judas. Now there's a difference between Peter and Judas. But the difference is not something that lies internally. In those two men that comes, comes from them. The difference between them is not their strength. It's not some sort of faith that they could generate. The difference between Peter and Judas is the same difference that's between every saved person and every lost person. It's the distinguishing, electing, preserving, redeeming, saving grace of God Almighty. So the first difference that I see here between Peter and Judas is their repentance. Look at verse 3 of Matthew chapter 27. Then Judas, which had betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself and brought again the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders saying I've sinned and that I have betrayed the innocent blood and they said what is that to us see thou to that 
And he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. Now it says here Judas repented. He had a form of repentance, didn't he? Judas's repentance was born from sorrow. He was sorry. He was sorry for, for what he had done. He was sorry for what he had caused the Lord. I really don't think Judas ever thought that if he betrayed the Lord, that the Lord would be condemned. I think that Peter thought the Lord would just walk away from his persecutors, just like he had every other time. How many times did people come to lay hands on him and they couldn't? He, he just walked away or suddenly they couldn't see him, they couldn't find him. I really do think that Judas just thought that that's what would happen again this time. He'd just walk away. And this is what Judas thought. He said, I'm tired of this. He thought all the Lord was doing was just trying to reform Israel. And Judas thought, this isn't working. I'm just going to get this money, take my money and run. I really think that's as far as Judas ever thought that it would get because he seems very surprised that the Lord was condemned. He was surprised by that. He was so sorry. He was so sorry that he'd done something to cause that. But sorrow is not repentance. Sorrow never leads us to repentance unto faith or unto, unto salvation. You know, by nature, we've all done things that we're sorry for, aren't we? Or maybe we're sorry for what it caused, like Judas did. Or, or usually it's we're sorry we got caught. Or we're sorry that God is just and he's going to punish us for it. Well, I mean, you're not really sorry we did it. We're just sorry we're going to get punished for it. But by nature, here's what we're not sorry. We're not sorry about the nature of our sin. We're not sorry about our sin against God, that we've offended God. We're sorry, but repentance is not being sorry. Repentance is a turning. It's a turning to Christ from our idols. It's to turn away from all those things that we used to trust in. We, we trust Christ. So we quit trusting in all of our religious activity or our good works, and we don't trust those things anymore. Because now I trust Christ to be my all. That's repentance. And every believer has repented that way. Turned to Christ. And we've done it because God's turned us. Because God's given us faith and repentance and he's turned us. But every believer has turned like that, haven't we? We turn to trust Christ. But you won't find a believer anywhere that tells you I've done that perfectly. You won't find a believer anywhere that will tell you I've done that once and for all. Now I don't have to do that again. <laughs> now we do need to repent of our repentance, don't we? we? We need to not trust our repentance. We need to trust Christ. So, you know, we need to repent of our repentance. It, it's, not, it's not perfect. It's not good enough. The believer is constantly turning to Christ. That's why Peter said, to whom coming? It's not just I came to, to Christ once, you know, 25 years ago, I'm all fixed up. It's to whom coming? I'm constantly coming to Christ. I'm constantly trusting him. The issue is not whether I trusted Christ 25 years ago. The issue is do I trust him right now? Right now do I trust him? Right now am I coming to him? So Judas was very sorry, but he never turned to Christ. Judas was very sorry, but you'll notice he never came to Christ and begged for mercy, begged for forgiveness. He never called out to God for mercy. Judas, his repentance was just because he was afraid of the wrath of God. He didn't turn to Christ because he saw the glory of Christ, the redemptive glory of Christ. And that's the difference between Judas and Peter. You know, every one of us can understand a guilty conscience. I'm sure Judas had a very 
guilty conscience. We've all done stuff we feel guilty about. We are the only thing, there's only one thing that will quiet a guilty conscience. It's being made not guilty. And that's what the blood of Christ does for his people. The blood of Christ quiets the believer's conscience because he takes away the sin we feel guilty about. In Christ, the believer has nothing to feel guilty about because in Christ we have no sin. The blood of Christ has taken away the sin of God's people. So everybody who believes on Christ has a quiet conscience. As long as we look to Christ, as long as as we're trusting in his blood to put my sin away, I've got nothing to feel guilty about. I have a quiet conscience because sin is gone. Now Peter's repentance, that was real, wasn't it? Because when did Peter repent? Peter went out and wept bitterly. He was very sorry for what he did, but that's not his repentance. Peter repented when he saw the Lord again. Remember, Peter said, boys, I'm going fishing. He was out there fishing, and he didn't mean I'm, he didn't mean I'm going up for a weekend like here anyway. He meant I'm going back to professional fishing. And as they're out there fishing, he saw the Lord on the shore. He said, boys, it's the Lord. Peter jumped in the ocean or sea and swam to the Lord. He went straight to the Savior as soon as he saw him. And very shortly, in the conversation that followed, Peter said, Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. See, Peter showed that his hope and his confidence was in Christ. He didn't say, I didn't do wrong. He said, you're my hope. You're my confidence. That's what, that's what quiets my, my conscience. You know, our good works and our morality and our religious activity and all these none of that's going to quiet our conscience and if you're trying to quiet your conscience by your morality and your good works and your religious activity you're just gonna make it worse i mean how many good works do you got to do for your conscience is quieted how many good works do you got to do you have to perform for you're perfect because the only way your conscience is going to be quieted is if you're perfect how many good works do you got to do to be perfect we can't do it can't it's too late. <laughs> if I could be perfect from here on out, it's too late. All <laughs> oh, the sin of, of, of my past is too late. Trying to quiet our conscience by our good works is just going to make our conscience worse. And Judah's conscience was bothering him so bad, the only thing he could think of to quiet his conscience was killing himself. Now that's what man's works and man's religious logic will lead to every time. The only way I can quiet my conscience is killing myself. It never occurred to Judas's natural mind to beg for mercy. And I don't know a lot about the subject, but the other reason that I hear of that people commit suicide, like Judas did, is they feel hopeless. I'm sure Judas just felt completely hopeless. There's no way out of this. I've betrayed the innocent blood. I've betrayed... The Lord. And the only way he could see out of it, the only way he could see to get out of this hopeless feeling was to kill himself. Now, no believer, I hope you'll listen to me, no believer is hopeless. No believer. We have a good hope through the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And that hope is not a wish. It's an expectation. 
You look it up in your Strong's Concordance every time, oh, I don't say every time, most times at least, that word hope is used in the New Testament. It means expectation. We have a good expectation through the grace that's in Christ our Savior. The believer can have a quiet conscience when we look to Christ. Now, we can't have a quiet conscience looking ourselves, but we can have a quiet conscience in looking to Christ, can't we? And this is just kind of an aside, but I do feel led to say this. I hope that nobody here, nobody under the sound of my voice hearing this recording later on, ever feels so guilty and so hopeless that you take your own life. Don't do it. Don't do it. Call somebody. Call me. Call one of these folks here. We're no mental health expert. But I can tell you two things. There's good hope to be found in Christ. There's a quiet conscience found looking to Him. And I know how to work my computer to look up a number to call somebody that can help you with the rest of it. But I know those two things. There's a good hope in Christ. And there's a quiet conscience in looking to Him. All right, here's the second difference between Peter and Judas it's the price of their redemption. Judas brought those 30 pieces of silver and he tried to give them back. He tried to give them back to the Pharisees and, and they wouldn't take it. But it seems like Judas thought, I can make restitution for this. If I just give the money back, we'll all be square. And I've made restitution. Now, spiritually speaking, isn't that the way human nature thinks? We want to make restitution. I, I know I've done something wrong. I, I know it's not right between me and God. I want to do something to make it better. Now, we would never dream. I don't, most people wouldn't think this. They would never dream. I can make myself perfect again. After I've sinned, after I've let the horse out of the barn, nobody's going to really think I can make myself perfect again. But man's religion is trying to make restitution, partial restitution. We know that the, the debt is so large we can't pay it all. But if I can make partial restitution and make the, make the debt not so big, then Christ will do the rest for me. You know, I've taken the first step. I've taken the first several steps. Now, now Christ will, you know, he'll, he'll finish the work. I can't make payment in full, but, but Christ will just pick up, you know, and, and pay the part that I can. Now, that sounds so sweet, doesn't it? That sounds so nice. It, it's kind of the American way. I pull myself up by my bootstraps, and I'll do a little bit, and somebody else help me the rest of the way. That sounds so sweet, but it's not true. No, it's not true. God is holy. God is just. God can only accept full payment for the sin against him. His justice must be completely satisfied for the sin that's been committed against him. God cannot show mercy to anybody until justice is satisfied. Well, you and I can't satisfy God's justice. There's no restitution to be made to God by giving the money back. There's no restitution being made to God by straightening up and doing better than I did before. The only restitution that God will accept is payment in full by the blood of His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. The Father, see, we're not hopeless. The Father's provided salvation for His people. He will accept. He won't accept anything we do, but He'll accept the blood of His Son. He'll accept the blood of the sacrifice of Christ as payment in full for 
all of the sin of all of his elect. And this is the thing I love about salvation in Christ. It takes all the pressure off. The debt is paid in full. There, now we're going to serve the Lord, aren't we? Believe, every believer wants to serve the Lord. But the pressure's off. There's a, there, it's a totally different ball game when you're working to pay off a debt and you're working because you love somebody. Totally different ball game. There's no need for any believer, anyone here, to feel like you've got to make restitution to God. Just look to Christ. Just believe on Him. His blood has paid the debt to His people. Quit working, trying to please God, and rest in Christ. Just rest in Him. There's no worries for your soul resting in Christ. Otherwise, we're going to have this constant burden on us, thinking we've always got to do something to make up for our sin. And that burden will be constant because we'll never get it off our back. We'll never be into But Christ did. So rest in Him. Alright, the third difference between Peter and Judas. It's their knowledge of Christ. Judas says here in verse 4, I've sinned in that I have betrayed the innocent blood. Now there's a lot of similarities between Peter and Judas. When you look at them outwardly, when you look at them as those in those three and a half years that they spent with the Lord in his earthly ministry, many similarities, aren't there? Judas preached the same way that Peter preached. He went out and preached. He preached the same message that, that Peter preached. If he didn't, all the other disciples would have noticed the difference. He's preaching the same message that Peter preached. But being a preacher, that doesn't save anybody. I tell you where there is salvation, though. It's believing the Christ we preach. See, it's in Him. It's in Christ. It's not in us preaching. Judas had some knowledge of the Lord Jesus. He knew who the Lord Jesus was. He could come up in the dark and he could pick the Lord out of a crowd of people. And he could go up and kiss Him on the cheek and identify Him. But by God-given faith, Peter knew the Lord different. He knew that the Lord Jesus was the Son of God, the Messiah that should come. Peter knew him and believed him. Judas just knew who he was physically. And Judas knew some good doctrine. He really did. Judas knew some good doctrine. He shows it here. I betrayed the innocent blood. He knew that the Lord was innocent. He knew it. That's the reason, I'm sure, that we never read about Judas being called as a witness at our Lord's mock trial. I mean, you'd think that the one that betrayed him would also be a witness, wouldn't you think? But there's no record of him being a witness against the Lord because he knew the facts. Judas knew the facts. He knew that the Lord Jesus is the sinless sacrifice. He did no sin. He knew no sin. He knew he was innocent. But here's what Judas didn't know, what he didn't believe. He didn't believe that the Lord Jesus Christ, the sinless sacrifice, could put away his sin. He didn't come begging for mercy. Judas didn't know there's cleansing for sin in this sinless blood of Christ, in this perfect blood of Christ. But by faith, Peter knew that. And he was seeking forgiveness, that's where he came, wasn't it? Peter knew there's forgiveness to be found in Christ. 
Peter was the one that said, remember that whole big crowd had been following the Lord and they all went away. They said, this is a hard saying. Who, who can hear it? And the Lord told the twelve, you're free to go. You can go away too. And Peter said, no, Lord, we're not going to go away. To whom shall we go? To whom shall we go? You're the one who has the words of eternal life. We believe and we're sure that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. How did Peter know that? And he knew some things. He knew that, but he also trusted his soul to him. Why? God gave him faith. And he left Judas alone. That's the difference. Now, I want us to know the right facts. I mean, you, we have to know the right facts about, about the Savior. Otherwise, we're going to trust the wrong one, and our souls will be damned because we're trusting the wrong one. I want us to know the right facts, the true facts about the Savior and who He is so we trust the right Jesus. I mean, you're not saved just by saying, well, I trust Jesus. I mean, let's find out which one you're trusting in. Is it this Jesus? Is it the God of the Bible? I want us to know the right facts. But there's a big, big difference between knowing the right facts and having a saving knowledge of Christ. A saving knowledge of Christ makes us run to him and trust our souls to him. I want, I, we've got to know the right facts, but oh, we need much more than that. Listen to what Brother Fortner wrote in his commentary on this. He said, Judas came to the very door of heaven. He handled the door. He showed others the door. But he went to hell when he died because he never went through the door. Judas never entered that door by faith. He knew all about the door. He knew how the door worked. You know that door back there about the hinges on it and the weight of it and what it's all made of. And you know, Brother, if you're going to leave this room, you got to go out the door. That's what Judas never did. He never entered in by the door. And here's another thing. You know, I don't know what, what good Judas thought it would do to kill himself. I, he probably just thought it's the only way he could quiet his, his conscience. It's the only way he could end this hopeless feeling because he just can't deal with it. I, I don't think he really thought there's any real benefit in, in his death. But you and I need to remember this. There's no merit in our suffering. There's no merit in our blood. There's no merit in our death. I've heard people say this about someone that, that died and, and, you know, they lived a tough, tough, tough life. I mean, they lived a tough life. They were, they were in poverty or in ill health or just, you know, being persecuted for being a good person and, you know, whatever, you know. And they say, well, if anybody deserves to go to heaven, you know, it's them. They've already suffered hell here on earth. No. No, they haven't. No, they haven't. There's no merit to our suffering here on earth. There's no merit to our death. All our death will be, if the Lord tarries, every one of us here is going to die and lay in a casket. We're all going to walk by and say, well, I'm going to miss him. All that death will be is the natural result of sin in our bodies. Sin, when it's finished, bringeth forth one thing, death. There's no merit to it whatsoever. There's nothing in our death, nothing in our suffering that's going to satisfy God's justice even a little bit of it. There's merit in one death. In the death of Christ our Savior. See, it's his death, the merit of his death and his blood that we're opening in. But Judas went to hell when he died. 
because there's no ransom for his sin. Nobody satisfied justice on his behalf. Christ didn't die for, for Judas. He didn't make restitution for Judas and pay his sin debt. So him suffering, that's not going to get the job done either. Judas giving 30 pieces of silver back, that's not going to get the job done either. There's merit in the death of Christ. It's his blood that pays our sin debt. Then here's something else. that This, this thing is the same for, for Peter and Judas. In both cases, the scriptures were fulfilled. When Peter sinned against the Lord, he denied him. Peter was not cast off. The scripture says the Lord came to save sinners. Peter's a sinner. The Lord saved him. The death of Christ is no random occurrence. The death of Christ is the purpose of God. The whole Old Testament gives us a picture, many different pictures of that. The death of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ, was ordained by the Father. That's why all this is happening. Look over at Acts chapter 2. After Christ died, now Peter's become the spokesman, hasn't he? Acts 2, verse 22. You men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Not the counsel of the Jews, not the, not the counsel of, of the Romans, not, not the advice of Pilate, the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. That's why you've taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain him. Look over to Acts chapter 4. See, this is the, the, the sacrifice of Christ is fulfilling the Old Testament scriptures, the Old Testament prophecies. Even David prophesied of the death of Christ. Acts 4 verse 25. Who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For of a truth, against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel not their hand, not their counsel, God's hand and God's counsel determined before to be done. The death of Christ fulfilled all those Old Testament pictures and prophecies of the Messiah, of the sacrifice. The death of Christ, his sacrifice for sin, that's the subject of all of the Old Testament. And that was fulfilled on this day, the day that Judas hung himself. Look back here at verse 1 of Matthew 27. When the morning was come, all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And when they bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Christ the Savior was led away bound. They bound him with ropes and chains or whatever they bound him with because he's such a dangerous criminal. They thought he'd escape and cause all this problems to their society. And that seems very offensive to us, that they would bind our Savior. But he had to be. 
He had to be bound to fulfill the Old Testament picture of the sacrifice. Abraham bound Isaac to the altar as he was getting ready to slay him. And when he took him off and found that substitute, the ram, Abraham bound the ram to the altar. All those sacrifices were bound to the horns of the altar. Christ the Savior had to be bound to fulfill that type and that picture. But listen, he wasn't over, he wasn't bound by ropes or chains, whatever they used to bound him with, because somebody overpowered his will. It's not like he didn't want to be bound. And, you know, I've seen I've seen people not want to be handcuffed and the police are arresting them. They wind up, you know, being handcuffed. That's not that's not how our Lord ended up being bound. Those things couldn't hold him. You know what held him? The bands of love that he had for his father to fulfill his father's will and keep his promise to his father. I'll be sacrificed for the sins of my people. It was the bands of love that held the Savior, that bound him so that he did not escape from them. He had the power to escape. He could have called those 12 legions of angels and put it into this whole mess, but he didn't do it because he loves his people. And the only way they can be redeemed is if he's sacrificed. It wasn't, it wasn't nails that held him to the cross. No. It was the bands of love he had for his people and for his father. Now look here at, uh, at verse 5. Here's, an, here's another way the scriptures were fulfilled. And he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed. And he went and hanged himself. And the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, it's not lawful for to put them into the treasury because it's the price of blood. See, suddenly now they're interested in doing everything right, aren't they? <laughs> and they took counsel and they bought um, with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Wherefore, that field was called the field of blood unto this day. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremy, Jeremiah the prophet. Zechariah is the one who actually quotes Jeremiah. This is never that we ever see written by Jeremiah, but Zechariah quotes Jeremiah the prophet, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him that was valued, whom they of the children of Israel did value, and gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord appointed me. Now, if you look back at Zechariah chapter 11, I'll show you the fulfillment of this. Zechariah chapter 11. How many ever years it was before the Savior is born? This is what Zechariah wrote, quoting Jeremiah. In verse 12 of Zechariah 11. And I said unto them, if ye think good, give me my price. And if not, forbear. So they weighed for my price thirty pieces of silver. And the Lord said unto me, Cast it under the potter, a goodly price that I was prized out of them. And I took the thirty pieces of silver and cast them to the potter in the house of the Lord. See, that was, that was prophesied many, many, many years ago, and now it's fulfilled at the death of Christ. Now I'm going to show you one more scripture. Genesis chapter 49. This scripture is, is, is not quite so obvious, not one of those things that comes immediately to mind, but it's a, it's a wonderful fulfillment of this prophecy. Now the, the Jews, they tried the Lord, didn't they? They found him guilty, they condemned him. Why didn't they just, why didn't they just kill him? I mean, the Jews' form of, of capital punishment is stoning. Why didn't they just stone him right then? They already condemned him. 
They decided they condemned him. He said he deserves to die. Why didn't they put him to death themselves? Why did they have to take him to Pilate? Well, I can tell you. Because two years prior to this night, the Jews, or the Romans, finally took away. You know, the Romans let people they conquered kind of self-govern themselves to an extent. Well, two years ago, the Romans took away the last national power of Israel. They took away the, their right to put somebody to death. They took away these, these last rights that the Jews had to self-govern themselves. Everything they did, everything, had to be done by the approval of Rome. There was no Jewish sovereign anymore. They, could, they couldn't decide how to govern themselves anymore. They had to get Rome's permission. The king of Israel is gone. That was prophesied. Look here as Jacob was, was dying and, and blessing his sons. In Genesis 49, verse 8. Judah, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. Thy hands shall be in the neck of thine enemies. Thy father's children shall bow, bow down before thee. The kings are coming from the tribe of Judah. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion. And as an old lion, who shall rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Rome took the scepter away, didn't they? They took the power of self-government away from the Jews at this exact time to fulfill the scripture. Shiloh's come. They took the scepter away from Judah. There's no more kings coming out of the tribe of Judah because now Christ our king. Shiloh has come to sacrifice himself for the sin of his people. And when he's lifted up, the people are going to gather to him. God's people are going to gather to him. And that's exactly what's happened, hasn't it? The scriptures were fulfilled. All right, I hope the Lord will bless that to you.